Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. and thank you for joining us. I'm your host for this EHS podcast, Angela Platt. I am a third-year PhD student at Royal Holloway, investigating how love is valued and demonstrated in religious families of old dissenters in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, I'm joined by Alec Ryrie, who is the professor of the history of Christianity at Durham University. His field of history is of the Reformation and of Protestantism more generally. His most recent publication, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt, was released in 2019 and will be the subject of today's conversation. Alec is also the current president of the Ecclesiastical History Society. So in this episode, we will be discussing the perceptions of medicine in the medieval and early modern world. As listeners know, we were originally scheduled to have the Churches and Rites of Passage Conference, which has been postponed to summer 2021. And in lieu of this, we are inviting papers for our interim theme on the church in sickness and in health. And Alec Ryrie, who's with me here today. Thanks for coming, Alec. Thank you, Angela. And it's a great pleasure to be on, on the first of these of these podcasts. Of course, we're happy to have you. Alec very topically has recently published a book which offers some coverage of this very issue. So Alec, what can you tell us about sickness and health in the early modern period? It seems to me that the religious history of the Reformation era um, and the the issue of sickness and health are are profoundly tangled up with one another. Um, Your questions of sickness of danger the imminence of death these are some of the most intense points of spiritual crises in 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 human lives generally um and especially in a period such as the early modern when medical knowledge is moving so quickly um but also the the ever-present um danger of disease during an era of of rapid epidemics um, is one that people are, are are vividly aware of, you know. But I became particularly interested in it when I was um, working on, on on my most recent book about unbelief, um, when it became clear to me that this was was one of the the points where crises of faith could happen. Thank you, Alec. So on the topic of this tension between medicine and unbelief, um, would you say that medicine and belief were always incompatible? Or did you notice some instances in which people who were believers uh, were also practicing medical practitioners and such? Oh, incompatible would would be way too strong. Um, And there's there's, certainly a, a, a great many earnest believers who are also medical practitioners. Um, but I think it is fair to say that of all the principal branches of learning in the medieval or early modern period, medicine was the one that 
Christianity had managed to domesticate the least. Um, you know, it's it's drawn on a um, on a set of traditions from the the classical world, which owe a lot to to, to Greco-Roman medicine and to Jewish medicine. There isn't really a distinctive Christian medical tradition. There's also a, a, a lot comes in from from Islam. Um, and so all that makes it a little bit uncomfortable for, for for Christians to deal with. And this isn't a coincidence. It's you know, not just that this is a, a, a discipline that Christianity never quite managed to get to. I think there is a, a real tension between the the approach of medicine as a discipline, which is to try to discern what natural matters can be remedied and to, to you know to take a, a sick person and to make them well um and the stereotypical christian approach particularly the, the typical christian approach of the medieval period which is about submission to god's will um and to seeing life as a preparation for death um and focusing on the power of god to um to to, to bring sickness or health and to you know to accept whatever his providence may bring um, so the, the typical Christian attitude um, is or ought to be um, humble submission to whatever sickness or health you get um, and recognizing God's hand in whatever happens, whereas the typical medical attitude is to look for natural causes and to attempt to change the, the, the outcome of, 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 of disease. And so while Christianity very often tried and managed to reconcile itself with medicine there is a a persistent tension there and this is why it seemed to me that the physician's consulting room uh is one of the sites where unbelief could um you know continue to flourish even during the so-called age of faith so when you say christianity tried to reconcile itself with the practices of medicine, are you speaking of Christianity as a whole, or was was this more prominent amongst particular denominations? Do you notice any any differences within Christianity? Well, I mean, I'm talking primarily about the about the medieval period. So, I mean, you know, in which case, I'm talking about Latin Western Christianity. I have no idea what's what the parallel story to this is in the in the Greek East. I, 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 Sure, some of our listeners know about that. I'd be really interested to hear about it. Um, but this, there's certainly a parallel story goes on in 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 the Protestant world amongst the, the various Protestant groups. I mean, the mainstream Protestant churches, I think, are inheritors of the same sort of compromise with the medical world that the um, that the, the, the Western Catholic tradition has worked out. But of course, the ways that around the wilder fringes of of modern Protestantism, that you've had, um, you know, theologies of healing, emphasis on the miraculous, um, as as other ways of dealing with this, and often quite a um, tense relationship between those groups and the, um, the and, and the medical establishment of the day. Um, I think it's an ongoing reflection of the of the same sort of problems. I don't want to compare the difficulties that medieval theologians had with incorporating Islamic medicine 
you know, explicitly with, say, the difficulties that modern Jehovah's Witnesses have with blood transfusions. But I think there is a, a, at least a, a thread of continuity. So I think you've anticipated my next question, which is one of continuity and change. So you mentioned this is primarily in the medieval period. What about when you start getting into the early modern period, uh, the Reformation period as well, which we know you're familiar with? What, did you see this pattern still present at that time? I, I, I do very much. I, um, I, you know, I, in, in, in the book where I talk about this, I, I, you know, I'm looking certainly into the in, into the 16th and 17th centuries um when it seems to me that unbelief having you know subsisted in certain reservoirs during the um during the medieval era uh is able to come out of them and flourish and it, it becomes proverbial during the um uh, uh during the 16th 17th centuries um that Physicians are inclined towards atheism. Um, you know, so much you know becomes a, a subject of, of of joking the way that you might joke about, you know, lawyers being proverbially immoral. Um, it's a stereotype that um, physicians have to have to deal with. I like the lawyer stereotype. It's of course frequently untrue, but the existence of the stereotype is itself, I think, quite an important fact. Okay, and. So on the issue of sickness and health, I know that you have a particular source on this subject that you'd like to share with us. Um, I I do I do. This is one of my favourites that I that I came across while 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 working on this. Um, and this is uh, a dialogue um, written by William Belain, who's a, um, a, a an English physician of the of the Elizabethan period. So he's writing in, in 1664. And it's this kind of wide-ranging, you know, characters drift in and out of it. You know, depiction of the place of medicine in his society. But the particular bit that I that I want to to, to you know, introduce listeners to um, is a dialogue, a, a fragment of this dialogue, which is between two characters called Antonius, who is a rich merchant. Um, and a, his doctor, who is unimaginatively called Medicus. Um, and the conversation between them starts with um, Antonius talking about how much he values his health um, and saying to, to Medicus that he would literally be willing to spend any amount of money um, in order to, to, to preserve his health. He's already been introduced as a, as a thoroughly amoral figure. Um, and Medicus replies to him, that's the way I assure you to perfect health. For that cause, the physician was ordained. As it is written, honour the physician with the honour that's due unto him because of necessity. For the Lord have created him and he shall receive gifts of the king. Um, which is a, a rather obscure biblical verse from deep in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and Antonius replies to this, that is a good sweet text for, position, for physicians. But why do you leave out these words in the midst of the matter? So he's misquoted. Um, and um, Antonius points out that the bit he's left out says, of the most highest cometh learning. Um, in other words, that he's left out the phrase attributing medical knowledge to God. Now, it may seem a bit 
surprising that Antonius would un, would know the detail of this biblical verse. So he goes on to explain, as I do remember, I heard our curate read it in the church, as by chance I came in with a sergeant to arrest two bankrupts. You know, this is a man who's not normally in church. He's only there when he's trying to enforce his debts. Medicus replies, what your curate pleased him to read, I care not, for I meddle with no scripture matters, but to serve my turn. But I know that which I've said is written in the Bible. And Antonius says to him, be all things written in the Bible true, I pray you tell me. And Medicus replies, God forbid, Master Antonius, then it would make a fray among merchants. For it's written, none shall enter into God's dwelling or rest with him upon his mountain that lendeth his money upon usury. And this is now become the greatest trade, and many be undone by borrowing, and few do lose by lending, especially men of your worshipful spirits. So how like you this text? Antonius replies very much in the same vein. Text how they will text. I'll trust none of them. Say what they will. There be many such sayings against men as the Ten Commandments, etc. So now we've already got him painted as a thorough villain. He's depicting the Ten Commandments as inhuman. And he goes on, for my part, I have little to do in these matters. Marry, I'd be glad to live orderly and civilly so that the world shouldn't wonder at my doings. But if damnation should arise when the scripture do threaten it to men, then should witty words in bargaining with facing oaths and pleasant venerous table talk with reviling of our enemies, etc., be accounted damnation. Then I warrant you, hell is well furnished with courtiers, merchants, soldiers, husbandmen, and some of the clergy, I warrant you also, among whom there are many more spiteful than spiritual, even as there are among the physicians, many more covetous than kind-hearted. I mean not you, Master Doctor. And Medicus says, sir, I know you don't. But, he goes on, and this is where you know, we move into a different mode. But so God help me. One thing doth much rejoice my heart in your communication. And Antonius says, what's that? Medicus replies, I think that we two are of one religion. Antonius says, what's that, I pray you, for I know not mine own religion. And now Medicus says, command your folks to depart out of the chamber. For the old proverb is, small pitchers have wide ears and the field have eyes and the wood have ears. Therefore, we must come closely and beware of blabs. So secrets are going to be spoken. And I think we're then supposed to understand there's a few minutes of kind of rushing around, battening down windows and so forth. And Antonius says, well, now the doors are barred. Say me and why. Of what religion are you? Be plain with me. Medicus says, hark in your ear, sir. I am neither Catholic, Papist, Protestant, nor Anabaptist, I assure you. Antonius says, what then? You've rehearsed choice and plenty of religions. What do you honour? The sun, the moon, the stars, beast, stone or fowl, fish or tree? Medicus says, no forsooth. I do none of them all. To be plain, I am a nullifidian, a person of no faith. And there are many of our sect. And this is what I think is most extraordinary, because that, that should be the most shocking claim that that. that you know, a really sort of eye-popping statement to, to admit to in this period, the sort of thing that could, could easily get you hanged. Um, and Antonius's reply to this is just to say, oh, qui dixit in corde suo non est deus. It's, he's, he's quoting the, um, the, the, the psalm, the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Well, we differ very little in this point, 
but if I do live, we shall draw near to a unity. In the meantime, let your apothecary provide some good things for the body. I pray you open the door. Thank you for sharing that fascinating source with us. Um, what would you say you find most interesting or significant about this particular source? I, I love the anticlimax, the way that, that Medicus, uh, have, well, after this build-up, makes this jaw-droppingly shocking confession. Um, and for Antonius, it just seems entirely to be expected, to, you know, to, be, to be taken in stride. Well, of course, you say in your heart that there's no God, doesn't everybody? Um, and Belaine doesn't need to point out to us that, of course, as the Bible has it, the people who say that are fools. He himself, very much a, 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 a man of staunch Protestant faith. But accepting and working with this stereotype that this is what his own medical profession is like. I, I, I think it's a lovely idea. So this example that you've shared with us from Belaine, would you say this is an exceptional example of unbelief? Or have you come across anything which is comparable to this one? Well, I mean, of course, we, we have to remember this is fiction. Um, it, it's, you know, he's, he's, he's trading in, in stereotypes and this, you know, stereotypes themselves are, are often really interesting. Um, but there's a, there's a limit to what they can, you know, what they can, what they can really tell us. Um, but there are cases of this sort that, that crop up you know, a, a, a scattering of them um, where people are saying these things when the doors aren't barred um, and it is it is possible to, to, to overhear them. Um, of, of people, you know, medical professionals of one sort or another um, running, running right through the period who are at least being quoted often against their will as as expressing these sorts of opinions, and um, one of the times you often find it is when they themselves are on their deathbeds, um, you know, almost beyond the reach of of, of, of potential potential retribution. Um, which is why I think, as as well as being you know good knockabout fun, um, that that sort of of statement is is worth taking seriously. Um, well, as people say nowadays, seriously, if not literally, uh, that it does give us some insight into not just the the stereotypes that are being hawked around and the stories that are being told, but the actual ways in which the um, the world of medicine was a surprisingly secular one. Do you have any sense at all as to how people responded to it, what they thought of it, if they critiqued that admittance of unbelief? Um, I don't have anything in the ways of actual responses to this this particular text. Um, although, you know, I, I, if, again, if listeners um, know of it, I'd, I'd love to hear. Um, one of the reasons that I, I like it is that it's, it's one of the most vivid of, a, of this wider genre of, of depictions of, of physicians in this sort of way. Um, I, I also particularly like the use of that word nullifidian, um, which, I mean, I, I, I can't prove that this is, is um, Belaine's coinage, 
but the word does crop up um, in in other contexts, often applied specifically to to physicians um, or to people who are described as mere naturians, people who believe that that nature is 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 all there is, that there's no god. Um, the the language around unbelief is moving really quickly at this point. Um, it it looks to me from the, the slightly awkward way in which Belaine talks about it that he either didn't know the English word atheist um, or that he thought that it was still too unfamiliar a word to be able to get away with, with using. Um, it had first been coined in English um, 11 or 12 years earlier. Um, and had really only come into to, to widespread use in the in the previous three or four years. So he's right on the on this this kind of terminological cusp. Um, and watching the way that that these different terms for talking about unbelief spread around, um, and can tell you more than you think. Um, you know that this for him the the unbeliever. The, that word is problematic too. Um, the the nullifidian is a person without faith. It's a it's an, an emptiness. It's a nullity. But it it um, is largely as as this dialogue depicts it about the rejection of authority. That all the you know the stuff about you know seeing the Ten Commandments as as inhuman um, is effectively saying we we don't want to subject ourselves to this. The, the, the tedious requirements of this religion, which is going to to determine the way that we live, whereas we wealthy gentlemen of the world don't want those sorts of restrictions on us. Um, it's a little bit different from the philosophical concerns of the that, that would later on come to be associated with the word atheist. But in this period, when atheism is first being talked about, it's it's often um, as what William Perkins, the um, Elizabethan theologian, called practical atheism. Um, that is, the person who lives as if there were no God, even though um, he or she, tends to be he, um, would um, claim to, and, and indeed might in all sincerity be a believer. Um, they just don't let their formally professed beliefs affect the way that they that they live their lives, which is actually, if you go back to the original Greek root of the word atheism, um, which means something more like godless than postulating that there is no god. Um, I, I think that breadth of meaning is is historically useful. Thank you. Um, so. This Belaine passage, if I remember correctly, you mentioned this briefly in your book, Unbelievers. And so I was wondering, you've, you've already touched on it a bit with um, discussion about unbelief, but could you talk to us a bit about this overall project, um, Unbelievers and Emotional History of Doubt, what inspired it, kind of what was your aim and your motivation in delving into this research? Sure. Well, I mean, what got me into this in the first place was working on, on, on a previous book about um, English Protestant practice, the lived experience of religion in the, in the, the 16th and early 17th centuries. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time reading um, diaries and autobiographical accounts by um, these earnestly and intensely 
pious men and women. Um, and I kept coming across them talking explicitly in terms about their temptations to atheism. Um, they use that word and will we'll sometimes you know, go so far as to say, you know, I was tempted to believe that there is no God. Now, this is not the sort of thing that, um, you know, a, a, a pious early 17th century Puritan ought to be saying. Um, and so I thought, well, there's something going on here and started started prodding into it. Um, and the the approach that I've ended up taking to it is to, to focus not on the way the history of doubt and unbelief is is very often told, which is as a history of ideas project, um, thinking about the the way that um, you know the philo- the philosophical background of, of of unbelief has grown up. Um, it almost seemed to me that that's a side issue. Um, that by the time you've got explicitly naturalistic philosophies being developed as you do with Spinoza from the 1660s onwards. Spinoza is not, I think, an, an atheist in any meaningful sense, but he certainly has a, a strongly naturalistic view of the world. It creates a philosophical structure which, which makes unbelief possible. Um, I thought the, the real drama is actually going to happen before that, um, that before you get to the intellectual history of doubt, I think you need to look at what I call in subtitle of the book, the emotional history of doubt, what it is that draws people towards unbelief or away from faith before they get to the point of, of, of being able to articulate a philosophy to justify that position. You know, most of us in most walks of life work out intuitively what it is that we think and then we construct rationalizations to, to, to justify. I think it's routine that that's the way that religious belief is constructed. Um, and I was simply wanting to suggest historically that unbelief may be constructed in the same sort of way. Um, and so I talk about anger and anxiety, which seem to me are the, the main emotional drivers of, 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 of this sort of, of phenomenon across the, the period I'm looking at. Um, the, the medical part is a relatively small um, small piece of the of the story, but there is something about the intense anxieties of the of the sickbed and of the deathbed, which do mean that that's one of the emotional sites at which um, unbelief could crystallize. Just going back briefly to uh, the medical side of things again, and as you mentioned, that that tension with the anxiety and unbelief. What value or significance do you see this work having, considering the era in which we're living um, at the moment with coronavirus, uh, the present predicament? Oh, I don't know if it's valuable or not, but I think it's interesting to to reflect on this sudden point of commonality with the long human experience that this this epidemic is is giving us, you know, I don't want to be crass and if it's, this is some kind of teaching moment. Um, but, you know, mo- modern life is very, very different from, you know, modern life in the Western world is very different from the, the lives of most human beings throughout most of history in an awful lot of ways. And one of those is our 
relative freedom until the last couple of months um, from fear of and exposure to um, epidemic or endemic um, disease. Uh, I mean, not, not that our age is without its its health problems, um, but communicable disease in particular is is managed and controlled to an extent that most of our of our forebears would find it very difficult to um, to, to, to imagine. And I think there is some historical insight to be gained from reminding ourselves how unusual the the freedom from disease that we've lived most of our lives in is. Um, and while, of course, I very much hope that this episode is going to be over very quickly, um, I, I think there there are potentially some some real insights to be gained into what it meant to to live amongst the the, the constant presence of of this sort of threat. And yet to need, nevertheless, to live your life. Um, these are the, the sorts of problems that we're beginning to work out as a, as a society right now. Um, but it's also the kind of thing that human beings have been doing since the, at least the beginning of agriculture. You know, times when, when disease, as a, as a re- communicable disease, as a regular presence in, in, in human life really seems to become an endemic issue. Um, and of course, that affects our spirituality as much as every other aspect of our lives. And uh, yeah, I think, what, insofar as this can show us something of how those effects work, as I say, at the emotional as well as the intellectual level, um, there may be something to be learned from. You mentioned that the the coverage that you give to the medical aspects of unbelief is just a small section in this book. I'm I was wondering if we can anticipate any further research or publications from you on this subject, given your interest. Um, on the medical side, um, well, I mean the the my the the main new project that I'm I'm working on at the moment is something about the the early history of the Protestant missionary movement um which is you know often thought to be a non-subject because protestants don't do mission until you get towards the you know know, even towards the later end of the 18th century um and i think you know maybe in a similar way that there's a prehistory there that we've missed uh uh, an early story which is not just about why they didn't do it but that it happens in ways that that we don't expect um and of course one of the central parts of the later missionary movement uh, you know the, the, the great missionary surge of the um 19th 20th centuries is is the use of medicine um you know medical mission is a a, a, a vital part of the kind of missionary ecosystem of the, of the high imperial age um so I guess I should be keeping my eye out for for the extent to which this is this is a thing in the in the earlier period. At the moment, the one point where I've I've come across it, um, and it's hard to know whether you know quite what to do with this. But this is research in progress. So I'll just you know give give you the the, the unprocessed stuff. 
um, is the way that for the early Protestant settlers in North America, um, so you know, in the, in the early to mid 17th century, the spread of catastrophic disease amongst the indigenous population, um, the way that they are regarding that and interpreting it through their religious frames. Um, I mean, of course, we've got a modern epidemiological understanding of that. Um, you know, these, these you know, extraordinary catastrophes, which you know, collectively um, you know, se seem to have, have, have culled the, the um, indigenous population of the Americas by you know, something close to 90% between the first European arrival in the 1490s and, and, and say, 1700. Um, disease isn't the only cause of that, but it's, it's far and away the greatest. Um, but for those settlers, they they understand these plagues as providential, uh, that God has emptied the land, specifically with a view towards preparing it for, for their settlement. Um, and it has an effect on their missionary thinking as well, because if you're dealing with a people whom it appears you can see this around you, that um, you know, they seem not to have a future. God seems to be drawing this, the, the, these, these pitiable wretches, these ruins of humanity, as they call them, um, towards the end of their history. You don't, that, that doesn't seem a point in investing a vast amount of missionary energy into converting these few wretched scraps of, of humanity who appear to be on the point of, of dying out. Better instead to accept the providence that you've been given. Um, and so when they talk about propagating the faith or planting Christianity in a new land, um, and it, those sorts of horticultural metaphors are used all the time, which I think is really interesting. Um, of course, that could mean by converting the people who are already there. But equally, it could simply mean by transporting enough European Christians over to this new land that it can be populated afresh with the people whom God has providentially chosen to do so. Um, so medicine becomes one of those kind of awkward crossing points at which the, the language of propagating the faith, which can seem so gentle and persuasive, can also tip over into being almost openly genocidal. So, yes, I think there's something there, but come back to me in a couple of years' time and I may be able to tell you something more coherent. Maybe we'll have to interview you again in a couple of years' time then to follow up on that project. That sounds really interesting. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. That was very interesting to hear about. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Angela. It's been great to be with you. Likewise, I hope we can do it again in the future. Uh, for our listeners, we have been discussing Alec Ryrie's book, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt, which you should hopefully be able to procure in most good bookstores. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. 
More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.